Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Now I wear the wire on and off. It's a very small, maybe an inch and a half by inch and a half device. Pam Davis was the CEO of a group of hospitals just west of Chicago. She wasn't political or a household name in Illinois. She really didn't know Governor Bogoyevich. But back in 2003, something bothered her, and she went to the FBI. And they taught Pam how to wear a wire. There was a female agent that actually told me how to put this on. You actually just put it in your bra. And I said, don't we tape it or anything? She goes, yeah, we can tape it if you want. So we taped it in. Pam was nervous, and FBI agent Pat Murphy tried to alleviate her concerns. Look, we're going to be there the whole time. We got you covered. You're not going to be by yourself. I was afraid it was going to fall out or that somehow I was going to be discovered with this on. It it felt very awkward. Had you kind of played out in your mind what you would say if it became known? If the gig is up, the gig is up. Truly, there's nothing. Oh, oh, that's my son's toy. I mean, (laughs) no, I I figured I would, I'd be outed. Yeah. Pam received this crash course in wearing wires in your bra just an hour or so before a scheduled lunch meeting that the FBI wanted recorded. They introduced me to some of the FBI agents who were going to be there, that I shouldn't make eye contact with them, I I shouldn't look at them, I shouldn't notice anybody. Pam arrives at a restaurant, a suburban mall, a French-themed steakhouse called Mon Ami Gabi. It was there that she met the two suspects. Now, Pam had originally approached the FBI because she thought as a hospital CEO that she was being shaken down. Agent Murphy sat in a van outside listening to everything. Everything she told us was being borne out on tape. At some point, Pam stopped being nervous. Some of the FBI agents would walk periodically through the restaurant. Some were at the bar. They had bags, Marshall Fields bags at the times. They hadn't even Marcus bags. And I'm thinking, oh, God, this is actually kind of really funny. Did Pam Davis seem like a natural at this once you heard her for a while? She was definitely a very quick study, no doubt about that. This whole thing seemed small at first, but it was the beginning of a multi-year FBI investigation that would send an American governor to prison. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Dave McKinney, and this is Public Official A. This is our podcast about the bringing down of a charismatic politician by a federal investigation. And with all the criminal intrigue surrounding the president of the United States, Rod Blagojevich's downfall is an important story to revisit right now. Previously, we heard how the former governor of Illinois was woken up in his home and taken away in handcuffs by the FBI. I explained to him that we had agents outside his door. We'd like to do this as quickly and quietly as possible. Blagojevich was later imprisoned on corruption charges. And since then, his wife, Patty, has mounted an aggressive media campaign to get him pardoned by President Trump. Ten years ago, these out-of-control FBI agents came after my husband with their unchecked power. There have been some hints that President Trump is taking notice. The president saw uh, what I had to say, and I think he liked what I had to say. Now, in this episode, we look at the start of the FBI's investigation and how a powerful political family tore itself apart. Part two, 
It's a family business. I mean, photographs are what take you to a good place, I would imagine, right? And if there are any photographs that do that, that I, I would like to see a couple of those. I mean, there's photos in here. I don't, you know. I'm sitting with Patty Blagojevich in the Blagojevich's library, and I'm being nosy. There are a couple of family photos, but not many. I've noticed that I have very few photos of the last 10 years. Yeah. Because you say photos take you to a good place, and who wants to remember this? You know? Yeah. As the wife of a politician and the first lady of Illinois, Patty was photographed with her family a lot. But then again, Patty was used to that kind of thing. Patty is the daughter of powerful former city council member Dick Mell. Dick was a political force of nature for almost 40 years. And as a family, the Mells knew the political spotlight. Now, Dick Mell and Rod Blagojevich had a pretty complicated relationship. It wasn't just the usual strain between a father-in-law and a son-in-law. But after Rod was sent to prison, they more or less made peace. You know, before Rod left, my dad was over here, and he said to Rod, don't worry about your family, I'll make sure they're okay. And he did. My dad paid for Amy's college. He helped me get back on my feet. And my dad did all that, and, um, you know. That reminded you how much you were loved. Yeah, all of that tension that existed. I mean, you reached a point, I take it, where you've been able to forgive your dad for yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, look at he, you know, I know he feels bad about any role that he had in starting this whole thing with Rod. He certainly has showed through his actions that he feels bad about it. And he's, you know, tried to help me make the best of a bad situation. This thing that Patty has forgiven her father for, we're going to come back to that. But Dick Mel was an important player in Rod's downfall. But first, Patty meets Rod. We actually met at um, one of my dad's fundraisers. It was at a uh, fundraiser that I had. Here's Uh, Dick Mel being interviewed on Chicago's PBS station WTTW. My daughter Patty had just broken up with a young man in Florence, Italy. I was a young student there, and like almost all American girls studying in Italy, you have to, of course, fall in love with an Italian boy. That's just like probably part of the experience. And she was real blue when I said to her, Pat, why don't you come to the fundraiser I'm having and and, uh, at least cheer you up because you're moping around the house. He had a fundraiser at a place called Zum Neck, which was a big German restaurant on Southport Avenue that unfortunately now is a parking lot. This young dashing fella came in and saw her and talked to her. And what I liked about him was I loved to read, and he was, you know, reading, you know, we're talking about that. We both like old movies, you know, that kind of thing. So he said, I'd like to take you out. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. So we set it up, and he said something like, you know, wear something nice. You're going to have the time of your life. And she said to me, Dad, who's this guy? He said, if I go out with him, I'm going to have the time of my life. This time of your life phrase, I mean, do you hear that from him? Are you just like rolling your eyes? Yeah, you were laughing about yeah. Like, you know, it was like a big thing. Like I told my parents, they're like, ooh, you're going to have the time of your life. But on that night, in that German restaurant, Rod found more than his wife. He also found a political patron. Now, Dick Mel was a powerful member of what we Chicagoans refer to as the machine a system where politicians secure support by giving out jobs. Six months after the night when Rod and Patty fell for each other, 
Dick Mill put Rod on the city payroll. Do you think Rod, with his own set of talents, would have gotten as far politically without your dad? I think he needed my father to break in. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because Chicago's just that way, right? So many of these positions are like handed down from generation to generation, practically. It's almost becomes a family business, right? Then Rod got an even bigger break in the family business. My dad called up and said, do you want to run for state rep? Rod's only thing was like, well, will I be free to vote the way I want to vote on any issue, you know? And my dad said, I don't care about that. <laughs> <laughs> of course, yeah, whatever. And so we just worked our butts off. It was a tough race with Rod up against a 14-year incumbent. My dad and Rod always, like, really got along during the campaigns and stuff when they were working at a common purpose. And I was pessimistic. I'm always pessimistic about election. And he'd come back, and he, he, was, he was upbeat about it. And, uh, you know, I kept saying, Jesus, this kid doesn't know what he's doing out there. But he was, a, he was a great candidate. Rod had been at the fringes of Chicago politics for a decade, and he was not throwing away his shot. So Rod and his father-in-law pulled the Blagojeviches and the Mel's together to get it done. My mom ran the phone bank. Rod's mom wanted help too, so she um, would call up and she'd like, you know, are you planning on voting for Rod Blagojevich? If somebody said no, she'd start arguing with them. So my mom, like, very artfully gave my mother-in-law phone numbers of people that weren't even in the district. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we just were all working so hard, so cohesively. And then we won. It was, like, so exciting. I mean, did he have any kind of, like, guiding principles at that point? Or was he just sort of in this to, like, let's see what happens? I think that, you know, it's funny because I think maybe when he called his mom and said that he had won for state rep, and she's like, you know, son, I just want to tell you, always be for the people. That was his guiding principle is to, you know, not be for special interest groups or the big rich people or whoever, but to be for the people. Rod served two uneventful terms in the Illinois House. Then he ran for the U.S. Congress, and he won by a two-to-one margin. But from the moment that Rod became a congressman, Mel began calling in favors, and the first cracks started to appear in their relationship. Rod gets elected, and uh, we're supposed to go to Washington for, like, the new members thing where he even sees what the budget is. And my dad's like, I need, and I need you to put so-and-so on your payroll for $40,000 a year. And it was this guy that was, like, this, like, loser guy... And Rod was just like, why? And my dad, like, flipped out, like, you know. They wouldn't even have Thanksgiving dinner together over that because it was just like, you know, you're going to put them on and you're going to shut up, you know, like that to Rod. And it was like, that was like the first inkling of how things could get even much worse. Longtime political consultant Pete G. and Greco worked on Rod's 2002 campaign for governor. He knew both Rod and Dick well. Dick was not um, shy about letting Rod know that he didn't get anywhere without him. And Rod wasn't shy about saying, Dick, I've kind of outgrown you. You know, they're both alpha male types, right? And during the governor's race, Mel felt like he was being replaced. And he was right. When Chris Kelly became much of a much bigger force, was raising more money, Dick sort of got pushed off to the side. He was the chief consigliere, and then he was just another guy in the room. Chris was the guy. If you're going to understand the breakdown in Rod and Dick's relationship, you have to know about Chris Kelly. 
Kelly was a guy who made millions off roofing contracts with the city. During Rod's run for governor, Kelly was a major fundraiser. On the campaign trail, it wasn't Mel and Rod's entourage. It was Kelly, always dressed head to toe in black. Chris was a big personality. Like, uh, you know, um, that's my dad. Um, you know, I think a lot of people hated him, but I liked him. He was an effective fundraiser for sure. And that effective fundraising was crucial in getting Rod elected governor. You know, Rod's the governor, and my dad somehow felt like he should have been the, not the puppet master. He had more respect for Rod than that, but he felt like he should be like the, you know, the governor-in-law, you know, like have more Mm -hmm. influence. Yeah, Rod just hated Mel, uh, complained about him constantly. This is Bradley Tusk. He was appointed deputy governor by Blagojevich, a close witness to the feud between Rod and Dick. It was a very fractious relationship that really spilled into his work. A case in point, statewide emergencies. It was just a year and a half since 9-11, and tensions over terrorism were still high. So the head of Homeland Security under President George W. Bush arranged a conference call, staging an emergency drill with governors from across the country. And I was worried that Rod wouldn't dial into the call, so I actually went over to his house so that I could literally press the buttons on the phone, put it up to his ear, and just make sure he participated in it. And when I get to the house, there's just yelling and screaming. And Mel had sent out a fundraising letter about an event announcing that Rod was the guest of honor, but he had neglected to tell Rod about it. And Rod just went ballistic. And as Rod is ranting and raving and tearing the letter up into pieces and throwing it down the stairs, the time for the call is getting closer and closer. Rod's screaming about his father-in-law, and Tusk is meekly reminding him about his responsibilities as the governor of Illinois. But Rod won't get on the call. He said, why not? He said, I'm dealing with this. He said, a fundraising letter is more important to you than the national security of our country. Tusk's arguing with him, telling him that the call is set for 1030. It's 1028. 1029, 10:30. And I finally realized he's not going to call in, but at this point, it's really too late to cancel. So Tusk jumps on the call, and on the spur of the moment, he pretends to be the governor. And so they asked each governor to authorize sending out the National Guard, and, and they got the Blagojevich, and I sat there and said, oh, shit, you know, I guess I have to answer. So I said, you know, yes, I, I approve. Send out the National Guard. Again. It's just 18 months after 9-11, and yet Rod is ignoring a national security drill because he's enraged with his father-in-law. And I hung up the phone, and I heard he was still screaming on the phone at Chris Kelly or Resco, whoever it was, and I kind of slipped out the front door and went back to the office. Coming up after the break, an investigation begins, and Dick Mel blows everything up. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This is Public Official A, Part 2, about how it all began. While Governor Bogoyevich and his father-in-law were feuding, an FBI investigation was beginning. It was seemingly unconnected to the governor. But that would change. So the FBI is slow. They're methodical. 
It's all just the facts, man. But investigations need to start with something. And this one begins with a phone call. I was fuming, and I called the FBI. Again, that hospital CEO, Pam Davis. When I called them, they said, nobody ever calls the FBI. (laughs) And uh, she began to tell us what was going on. FBI agents Pat Murphy and Daniel Kane took on the case. It certainly met our threshold of what we'd want to investigate, so we figured we'd give it a shot. I pitched her with the idea of wearing a recording device. What was going through your mind that moment they asked you, would you consider wearing a device? I thought, you know what, if I'm not going to do it, who would do this? And I was not afraid at all. I I thought, yeah, absolutely, I'll do this. None of this would ever happened if people like Pam Davis didn't come forward. So people can sit back and complain about the corruption that's going on. But if you're not going to say something or do something, it's going to stay the same. It was the beginning of what the FBI called Operation Board Games, a multi-year investigation into Illinois state boards led by appointees of the governor. So here's what happened. In 2003, Davis was the CEO of Edward Hospital, just west of Chicago. The hospital was often at full capacity, so Pam was looking to expand. It would take about $200 million. But in order to build, Pam needed to get approval from a state board. When I go to this first hearing, I got turned down flat, not not a single vote. Pam couldn't understand why the hospital was rejected. The application was thorough. The need in the community was definitely there. But then, after the hearing, Pam was approached by two men. Nick Hurchin and a guy named Jacob Kieferbaum came up and slapped their business card in my hand. Nick Hurchin was in finance, and Jacob Kieferbaum owned a construction company. Pam felt the message was basically, you know, shame about what happened to your hospital project. If you hire Jacob, we know it'll get approved. Well, that didn't sit well at all with Pam, and she went to the FBI. Pam and the agents began recording all her conversations with Hurchin and Kieferbaum, some of them through the device in her bra. Pam strung these guys along, playing dumb and getting them to repeat the alleged shakedown over and over on tape. I did think it was becoming more important simply because they were spending so much time on this. Investigators alleged that Nick Hurchin told Pam that he and Jacob Kieferbaum had an in with a state board member who could help get Pam's project approved. Pam innocently asked them to prove it, and a meeting was set up at a breakfast place called the Eggshell Cafe. Jacob was outside the restaurant, which he had never done before. I was glad I had the wire on because he walked up to my car, and I'm like, oh, my God, thank God I wasn't putting it on then. This state board member is waiting for them in the restaurant. He walks by the table and says, hey, these guys are my friends. You should really trust them and listen to what they're doing, and they're good guys. And he did that twice because they thought I was slow, I'm sure, by this time. (laughs) And so he made sure I knew twice that he was controlling if this was going to go or not go. FBI agent Daniel Kane. That was a, a key recording because it went beyond Jacob Kieferbaum and Nick Hurchin. This state board member, this guy hinting that if Pam works with Jacob Kieferbaum, then her building will be approved. This kingmaker is a guy named Stuart Levine. So this was the scheme. Levine controlled the board approving hospital projects. But he would only approve projects if Jacob Kieferbaum was hired to do the construction. Then Kieferbaum would give a kickback to Stuart Levine, and everyone would get rich. 
I think it was a system where pathetic people wielded some power, and they thought it made them great. Ultimately, Kieferbaum and Levine would go to prison for their involvement. Hurchin was initially charged, but later cleared of wrongdoing by a federal judge. With that information, we were able to get up on a wiretap on Stuart Levine's home telephones, which was a watershed moment in the investigation. Stuart Levine is the first big fish caught in Operation Board Games. And because of the evidence gathered by Pam Davis, the feds are listening in to all of Levine's calls. Yeah, hi, Shelly. It's Stu. Hi, sir. Good morning. Good. You can be able to handle that today? And listening to the people he was talking to on his telephones, he had connections with a lot of power players within the state of Illinois. Hello? Uh, Joe, Stuart. Hi, how are you? Okay. Um, Agent Pat Murphy also listened in. My jaw would hit the desk because I'm like, this guy's talking to everybody. This Stuart Levine is connected to everybody in Illinois and beyond that's connected with politics. Uh, you know how upset people can get political powers would be. Uh, So that's why I want to wrap it up. Through monitoring Stuart Levine's phone, the FBI unearthed a litany of corrupt players. One of those players was a longtime Illinois lobbyist named Bill Cellini. Hello? Stuart? Hi, Bill. You in the middle of something? No. Listen to this conversation Uh, recorded by the FBI. Cellini is doing most of the talking. Levine is mostly listening. It it may be that there is no body checking yet, mm-hmm. that there is no body investigating anything that they're doing yet, mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. But there's so much going on that is no question that it will happen. Hmm. Because too many people are talking uh, about how you get things done. Too many people are talking. Mm-hmm. So the question becomes... Too many people are talking about how you get things done. Cellini and Levine are talking about the brazen way that people close to Blagojevich are fundraising. FBI agent Daniel Kane. There was telephone calls with individuals like Bill Cellini who were now mentioning Tony Resco and Chris Kelly's name. Mm-hmm. He's talking about these guys, Tony and Chris, because they are out, uh, according to him, essentially hammering people for contracts, uh, with, with contracts for fundraising. Mm-hmm. And them hammering people for contributions in return for state contracts. And, and i, I got to tell you, I'm a nervous wreck over it myself. You think they are? Oh, you know they are. I know they are. Mm-hmm. I know they are. Starting with Pam Davis's recordings, the FBI has gone from two influence peddlers to a corrupt board member, and through these wiretaps, they were suddenly hearing about two other men, Tony Resco and Chris Kelly. And we knew that Tony Resco and Chris Kelly were top fundraisers for Governor Blagojevich at that time. The FBI was onto something much bigger than a hospital CEO being shaken down. I'd been meeting with the FBI and working on this so long, I started feeling like an FBI agent. I wanted to get the bad guys. 
For eight months, Pam Davis was recording calls and having meetings under false pretenses, talking to suspects that she really wanted nothing to do with. Did it take a physical toll on you? I didn't think it did, but just by uh, serendipity, we were having executive physicals. And for the first time ever in my life, they said, man, you've got really high blood pressure. My fingernails that are rock solid hard started to become paper thin, and my hair started to get very thin too. And then Pam was outed by me and my colleagues. I covered Illinois government at the Chicago Sun-Times, and we published an article naming Pam and outlining the kickback scheme. Everyone was furious. I still have no idea how the Sun-Times got it, but it stopped cold. Boom. That's it. I was no longer needed. I did get a call, and they were thanking me. And I said, wow, do you call everybody that you work with and thank them? And they said, oh, God, no, nobody works with us for eight months. And I said, I didn't realize I could quit. For myself and my colleagues, the revelations involving Pam Davis were intriguing. We knew there was a shakedown scheme. There were hints of something bigger, but we had no real indication of what. Then, unexpectedly, a bombshell. A very public outburst from a very frustrated father-in-law. I know he feels bad about any role that he had in starting this whole thing with Rod. Do you remember that earlier conversation, the one with Patty, about her father and the thing he did that she found so difficult to forgive? Well, we're at that point. What happened there? It was my dad. He was angry. Well, it's all about the stupid landfill, right? Mm-hmm. Cousin Frankie, whoever this, you know, who I met like maybe twice in my life. My mother's second cousin had this like landfill. Cousin Frankie supposedly was telling people, you can dump whatever you want into that landfill because I'm cousins with the first lady, you know. So that gets back to us. And now what does Rod do? You know, obviously he knows this now. He can't ignore it. He shut the landfill down, and my dad got pissed off, and he was in Florida, and somebody told him that, I don't know how it happened, but my dad made this like accusation that Chris Kelly was selling boards and commission seats for $50,000. I don't even know what it was. Mm-hmm. That accusation that Dick Mel made became a scoop that our City Hall reporter and I broke in the Sun-Times. My colleague, Fran Spielman, talked to Mel on the phone. He was ranting about his son-in-law the landfill, and Cousin Frankie. Mel was letting it rip with a long list of complaints. Things like, Rod throws anyone under the bus. He uses people, and he used me. He uses everybody, and when there's no more use, he discards them. Mel then complained that he'd been displaced by fundraising chief Chris Kelly. Dick compared himself to a spurned spouse, replaced by a trophy wife. And then he said the damning part that Chris Kelly traded gubernatorial appointments to state boards for $50,000 checks to the governor's political fund. State boards like the one that was denying Pam Davis's hospital project. Basically, quid pro quo, pay to play. That pretty much started that whole investigation on us. Rod tried to spin the whole affair over Cousin Frankie's landfill as an example of his integrity masculinity. Do you have the testicular virility to make a decision like that, knowing what's coming your way? Standing up for what's right, despite the accusations from his father-in-law. Okay, and then stick to it. Mel would later retract what he said, but the cat was out of the bag. 
the Illinois Attorney General, the Cook County State's Attorney, and Blagojevich's own Inspector General all opened investigations. Yesterday, the governor rejected any hint of wrongdoing. I can only tell you that we're going to cooperate and we look forward to a full vindication. And to quote Teddy Roosevelt, we're as clean as a houndstooth when it comes to those kinds of things. Rod had campaigned for governor as a reformer, and voters were not happy with this very public soap opera. The only thing we see is what we uh, see in the paper, and it's all seemed to be negative with uh, going on with his father-in-law. A new Chicago Tribune poll out this week suggests that these allegations are beginning to take a toll on the governor's approval ratings. You know, he, he's, he's trying to act like he's a reformer, but he's really not. But he forgot where he came from. His father-in-law made him nobody else did. I was friends with both. I said, listen, as your consultant, you guys fighting, this is bad copy. This doesn't look good. Consultant, Pete G. and Greco. And Rod at one point turned to me and looked at me and he said, this is like negotiating with a terrorist. You don't understand. His father-in-law, a That terrorist. was the level of animosity between the two of them. I felt like very much torn in the middle, you know, and I'd have like screaming matches with my father. And then we try to argue Rod's side to my dad and try to argue my dad's side to Rod. And yeah, it was very much in the middle. And put Patty in a really tough spot, but, you know, you got a choice. Do you decide with your parents or you decide with your spouse? You're going to go with your spouse every time. I stuck by, you know, Rod and throughout that. And unfortunately, you know, for years, you know, I had a very tense relationship with my father. And, um, yeah, it was bad. We approached Dick Mel multiple times for an interview. He politely declined, intimating that he didn't want to stir up any more family drama. Look, there was plenty of blame on both sides in, in that relationship, but it, it, it was battery acid. It was so caustic. Rod and Patty were kind of in the bunker. It was, it was the two of them against the world. With Rod and Patty hunkering down, the FBI investigation keeps moving. Just a couple of months after Mel's accusation, Stuart Levine is indicted, and federal subpoenas are issued to a number of people within the Blagojevich orbit. Politicians in legal trouble sometimes get interesting titles and official court documents. President Nixon was unindicted co-conspirator. President Trump, he's individual one. In a case of this investigation, one guilty plea lays out an elaborate pay-to-play scheme, all done to benefit a high-ranking politician. This court document includes the interesting title, Public Official A. They can say Public Official A all you want, but if you know that you haven't done anything wrong, you're sleeping at night. You know what I'm saying? Next time, the son of an immigrant steelworker climbs to the top. All of a sudden, you go from being just another schmo to like somebody. And that was a big deal to Rod because the whole time he was growing up, he was nobody. And somebody else gets in the way. He referred to him as Barry, Barry Obama. Public Official A is a production of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Dave McKinney. The producer is Colin McNulty. The executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Our intern is Sophie Lalonde. Special thanks to Al Keefe, Brennan Banizak, and Tony Arnold. The show is mixed by Adam Yaffe. If you like what you heard, leave us a rating or review and subscribe to Public Official A on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.